thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. Dr. Dave is my uh, scientist in the studio here tonight, and Alan from Orpington is on the phones. Hello, Alan. Hello there. Hello there. What's your question for Dave? Uh, just uh, uh, about the Hubble spacecraft, yep. the, the telescope. In five years, I think I should change its name to Trouble. <laughs> you know, after the original thing where they, uh, they needed to put spectacles on it to make it work properly, yes. <laughs> um, anyway, my, my question, and... Uh, Sue really is, um, in a way, someone you could talk about in this question. Oh. Because um, what actually happens is we get the program and the radio waves are sent to us. But when we get them, if we're in a car or wherever we are, they seem to land on us all at once. Yeah. And they, although they're coming from a central point, they don't seem to need to catch you up. So you hear a bit of music, there's no breaks, nothing. it just comes at you all at once. Now, I was wondering how that happens and what, whether it's moving at the speed of light or, or what it is that does it. How it gets to you so quickly, fundamentally. Uh, and without any brakes. Would you have to go at a certain speed away from it before you could interfere with it? Yes, radio waves are actually a form of light. So um, when they transmit, they move through the air at pretty much 300,000 kilometres every second. So as far as you or me are concerned, that's pretty much instantaneous on any, definitely across um, the UK. Um, you can just about start to hear um, light delays if you send, in it, send information up to a satellite and back down again, which is why, I don't, if you remember sort of 10 or 15 years ago when they'd talk to someone in the States on TV, mm-hmm. you quite often get a horrible delay, yeah. which is the, actually the time it takes for the information to go up to the satellite and come back down again, um, about 72,000 miles and then back again. Um, and then that time actually is significant and you can actually hear it. Um, and you, you're saying is whether you can ever, if how fast you have to go to be able to sort of overtake it. You have to beat it, I suppose, yeah. Um, the peculiar thing about light is that you can never beat it. Um, Einstein, the universe seems to work in this way that Einstein worked out, um, that light always goes at 300,000 kilometres a second. It doesn't matter how fast you're going or where you're going or where you're going relative to the thing which transmitted it, light always goes at that speed. And everything else sort of changes to make that work. It's really bizarre. It's, it's relativity, it's completely bizarre, but it seems to be the way the universe works. Well, what about when um, you're transmitting into space? I mean, we, we seem to be able to talk in space, and once again, they're moving at a fantastic speed. Yes, but not very fast compared to the speed of light. Um, I mean, the fastest things human-made objects are sort of talking about uh, sort of 100,000 kilometres an hour. 
So maybe um, ten, a few kilometres a second, tens, tens or maybe even 100 kilometres a second, probably tens of kilometres a second, mm. nowhere near 300,000. And so all the speeds which we move at are very, very small compared to the speed of light. That's brilliant. So... Yes, 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 Alan. I didn't realise you were that quick. <laughs> Do you know, Alan, neither did I. <laughs> it's cosmic. <laughs> Take care. And you too, thank you so much. Dr Dave, says Mike, what would be the effect on an astronaut if he spacewalked through the nebula light or any other spectacular solo light? Solo light. Not entirely sure what he means by nebula light. There's a couple of things it might be. Um, just start off with if you just if you got exposed to sunlight um, out in space, and even if you had a spacesuit which stops stop you kind of um, evaporating mm. and the vacuum of space. If you got exposed to direct sunlight in space, you'd be in serious trouble to start with, mm. because when we're on Earth, the ozone layer stops 99 percent of the ultraviolet light in the sun, and the ultraviolet yeah. light is what gives you a sun sunburn. Mm-hmm. So if you went out into space, you'd have sort of between twenty and a hundred times more um, ultraviolet light hitting your skin and within sort of a couple of minutes even if you're quite dark skinned you get a horrible case of sunburn mm. and it would kill you very very quickly so just normal sunlight wouldn't be at all very at all good for you um, other things you might mean by the nebula light the, the sort of things which produce the aurora um, the northern and southern lights mm. um, these are produced by very high energy particles which are thrown off by the sun in huge explosions they're actually associated with sunspots and the coronal mass ejections you get these very high energy particles flying off and they get caught in the earth's magnetic field and then they kind of smash into the earth's atmosphere it gives the atmosphere lots of energy and then the atmosphere glows now, the light wouldn't be a problem for an astronaut, the, the atmosphere glowing. It would just be like being a fairly, you know, fairly dim fluorescent mm. light. It would be absolutely fine. The problem is the particles. If an astronaut was caught in a really bad solar storm um, with lots of these particles going through him, um, these particles, they're moving at very close to the speed of light, maybe sort of two half to two-thirds of the speed of light, maybe. Maybe not, even, maybe not that fast, but definitely fast enough. Mm. When they smash into you to do all sorts of damage to the chemistry inside you, and that can um, essentially radiation. It can do damage. It could give you cancer, but e- even very quickly, it could just do cause complete havoc mm. with all the cell chemistry in your cells. Mm. And it, with enough, you can get radiation sickness and die. Mm. If you're in a low orbit, you're fairly safe because the Earth's magnetic field protects you. So where the um, space station is, there are problems with radiation, but it's survivable with a bit of shielding. But if, once you start getting out of the low Earth orbit, going to the moon or whatever, then you get into real problems. And I've seen, um, with all of the Apollo trips to the moon, essentially they were very lucky that they didn't hit one of these bad storms. So in fact, sev- several in between the missions, but none of them were at the same time as the mission. And there was one which was so bad that the um, astronauts would have been dead by the time they got back to Earth. So if you get hit, get hit by a really major solar storm and you're out in um, deep space without some really heavy shielding, you're in trouble. Mm, they're always all right on Star Trek, <laughs> Everybody's so interested. We're also interested in space and the universe and stuff now, aren't we? We need, we need that place to escape with aliens <laughs> out there, and all that it? kind of stuff. Um, a question here from Mark who says, what is the effect of the Earth's hot interior? Because, I mean, you, you see Journey to the Centre of the Earth, don't you? Which I know is a cartoon. But <laughs> And at school we learn, you know, that we've got yeah. all the volcanoes and bits of pieces and it's, and it's hot in there. So what's the effect of the Earth's hot interior? Well, there's all sorts of effects of it. I mean, um, the centre of the Earth is very, very hot. 
partly because when the Earth formed sort of four and a half, five billion years ago, um, lots and lots of um, lumps of rock basically fell into into it, crashed into each other, and that gave them lots and lots of energy, and that all got turned into heat. So the Earth started off very, very hot, because it's just so huge. That heat takes a very, very long time to get out. So um, the Earth inside is very hot. And the other effect is there's a whole lot of lots of elements which are radioactive. Mm-hmm. As they break up, they release lots of energy, and that gets turned into heat eventually. So the Earth is like a great big nuclear reactor, and I think something around roughly, very roughly half of the heat's left over from the original creation of the Earth which is coming out and the other half is coming from nuclear reactions. Um, what effects it have? All sorts of things. Um, one of the really major ones is it drives something called plate tectonics. This is where all the con- continents are drifting around. Mm. Um, and so, so you're getting heat, hot stuff rising in some places, creating new um, ocean floors, and then other places the cold, old ocean floors are sinking down and eventually melting, heating up and coming up to form new ocean floors again. Um, and this moves the Earth around and it keeps um, re- remaking the surface of the Earth. And it um, recycles lots of rocks and lots of gases. So um, I think if it wasn't for that and the volcano stopped happening, then all the carbon dioxide had been locked up by plants mm. mil- billions of years ago. Mm. And the Earth would have lost any greenhouse effect at all because having no greenhouse effect and the Earth would be frozen. Um, so there wouldn't be any greenhouse effect and mm. the Earth would freeze and we wouldn't be able to live. So the volcanoes have kept recycling all of the rocks which are made out of the dead plants, heating them up, releasing carbon dioxide, all the limestones and things release carbon dioxide. And that give, is given out and it gets recycled again and again and again. Mm. What about the um, crystals and minerals and, and all wonderful kinds of stones and things? And So is, is that part of that process as well? Oh, yes. Um, making, there's all sorts of there's different ways of making minerals. Mm. Some of them are made by getting a big lump of molten rock. Yeah. And if that, crisp, if that cools down very, very slowly, a bit like if you try and make ice cream and you don't stir it and you let it cool down very, very slowly, you get great big crystals forming. Mm. And if it, and with rocks, you're to, to get a nice big crystal, you're probably talking about cooling down over hundreds of thousands or millions of years mm. very, very slowly. So the crystal's got lots of time to very gently grow and you get lovely big crystals. Mm. And um, you get different uh, minerals depending on the exact conditions and what, and what the rock was originally made up of, what other things have been mixed into it and exactly how it's heated and cooled mm. over time. Mm. And so you get thousands of different minerals. Other ones are caused by hot water, which indirectly is because the earth is hot. So water will dissolve minerals in one place, um, then it'll cool down and then they'll fall out of solution again um, and create crystals somewhere else. And so, yes, there would be some crystals and minerals about without if the earth was cold, but not nearly as many. Mm. All right, well, let's go to our questions again. Uh, Graham and Skegness, um, going back to the conspiracy theories of landing on the moon, can, how can you make a footprint on the moon if there's no moisture to hold it in place? Good point, Graham. Dave? That is an interesting question. I think it's to do with the kind of sand there is. When you think you're trying to make a footprint on sand and dust, mm. you normally think you're on the beach where you've got um, sand which has been rolled around in the sea for a long time. Mm. And if you roll sand around in the sea, it knocks the corners off it. So you get lots of very spherical grains. Mm. And if you imagine that a whole pile of marbles um, and you try and make a shape out of them, they're all going to roll over each other and fall down. 
Um, but on the moon, there's been no water, there's been no air, there's been nothing to rub the part, rub the little lumps of dust against each other. They've just created in really high energy impacts of meteorites smashing into the moon, shattering things. That tends to form very very sharp sharp lumps. These lumps tend to um, back, kind of stick into each other. It was actually a great problem um, on the moon um, when they went there because this really, really uh, abrasive... The dust was incredibly abrasive. It got into everything. Um, it, in fact, it was quite nasty in the astronauts' lungs when, if they breathed it in. Really? Um, it also stank because mm. there's lots of sulphur in it and it, there's been no water to wash the sulphur out. Oh, right. Um, and so it, all of these very sharp, pointy crystals will tend to stick into each other and so you could so they won't roll over each other. It's a bit mm. like having a pile of kind of... Um, sort of stickle bricks or something. Yes. In which case, if you push them into a shape, they'll stay there. So, yeah, I think it's to do with the moon being very different to what you're used to. Mm. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientists, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientists, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week, we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientists.com slash podcast. Now it's time to go to the phones because Tony is on the line. Hello, Tony. Good evening to you, Sue. Uh, it's lovely to hear from you, Tony. I'd love to hear you. I think you're our top question asker because you ask such interesting questions. You must The things that go through your mind during the day or week to week, Tony, um, are phenomenal. So what's your question for Dave tonight? Well, the question is, um, with ceramic hobs, are they an offshoot of space? Uh, travel, you know, the re-entry, because they get very hot, and I wondered, on Earth they make them? Are they glass, or what? A ceramic is basically a material which is like a teapot. Normally they're um, oxides or something. Um, you heat them up, and they join together. So gl- a glass is a type of ceramic. A glass is mostly silicon dioxide. Um, it's got lots of other stuff mixed in there as well. Glass is just hasn't isn't crystalline. All the molecules, all the atoms inside it are fairly randomly arranged. I'm not sure if it is actually a um, consequence of the space directly, the direct materials. I think the way a lot of ceramic hobs work is they essentially have a light bulb, they have a glass surface or a special glass which can take the high temperatures. Um, and then you have a, a light bulb underneath, so um, a halogen light underneath. This gets very hot, gives out infrared radiation. And infrared radiation, it's a kind of light. It's just beyond the, it's quite a long way beyond the red end of the spectrum. And it's the stuff which, when you put your hand out in the sun, it makes it feel warm. So that comes up onto your saucepan and heats it up. To be honest, I'm not sure whether the materials were created for the space or not, but certainly there are a lot of ceramics which they have developed um, in order to um, survive high temperatures of reentry. The tiles on the outside of the shuttle, the white oh, ones, yeah, yeah. Um, those are a c- ceramic. They're a very, very, very low-density ceramic, sort of s- with lots of air in between, so mm. they conduct heat very, very badly. They're wonderful insulators. Um, and so they, so they are certainly a ceramic, but, whether, but I'm fairly sure they're not going to be the same material as in a ceramic hob. Yeah, they're not the easiest things to clean, Tony. You're not thinking of getting one, are you? I've got one. I've had three of them. Have you? Yeah, one busted. Because <laughs> somebody trod on it. Right. 
So there's obviously <laughs> dog... insurance on it. Anyway, what? <laughs> Tony, it's thank very you. very interesting about the sand, too. I love that. Most interesting. Lovely. Thank you, Tony. We I love you. Like so bless Take you. Care. Bye. Okay, bye. Now then, another question here that's come from uh, Darren, who says, a uh, quick question for Dr. Dave. What would happen if you were to travel in a vessel faster than the speed of light? What would you see? What would others see? And would they see you arrive before the light? Ooh, good one. Thank you, Darren. Dave. That's one of those very, very difficult questions. The scientific answer is, as far as we know, you can't go faster than the speed of light, so sort of all bets are off. If it's something which, as far as you know, is impossible, you can't really predict what's going to happen if, if, if you were going faster than the speed of light. Or actually, strictly what the science says is you can't go at the speed of light because going at the speed of light involve, would involve an infinite amount of energy. So if you're going faster than the speed of light, um, then, then the amount of energy you would need would reduce again. So... Um, if you could either go a lot faster than the speed of light or you certainly can't go out the speed of light but we don't have any way of getting faster than the speed of light without going out the speed of light to start with there are some theories which predict that you would end up going backwards in time in fact the theories tend to say that if you go faster than the speed of light the, the universe has got three dimensions mm. um, and there's another dimension which is essentially time um, which physicists think of as time and some some bits of relativity come out that if you're going faster than the speed of light, then the direction you're going in starts behaving more like time, and 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 time starts behaving like a normal direction. So you can move in time as if it was a normal direction, but it all gets very very strange. Fundamentally, the bets are off. We don't know. All right, Bonnie Tyler went faster than the speed of light. That's all I can say. Um, another one here for you, Dave. Well answered. Thank you for that. Paul in Abington says, uh, "What causes a collapsed lung?" Okay, um, a collapsed lung is basically um, your lungs are a bit like balloons. They have very cunning balloons, very high tech balloons. Mm. Essentially, like balloons, they can't inflate themselves. Um, the way they inflate is by you increase the size of your chest. Mm. And there's a, in between your chest and your lungs, there's a, just a bit of fluid. Nothing can get in there. So if you increase the size of the, your chest, it creates a vacuum between yep. the chest and the lungs. And so the lungs get pulled out as well. So the lungs inflate. You reduce the size of your chest and it squeezes the lungs and you breathe out. The problem comes is if you make a hole in your chest in through to the gap between the pleural cavity between your lung and your chest. That means that when you breathe in, instead of there the being a vacuum there, which mm. is forcing you to um, pull out your lung when you breathe in, mm. air can get in from outside. Mm. Um, and that means you get air between your lung and, the, and your chest and your lung doesn't inflate. Mm. And your lung will just slowly collapse because there's, no, there's nothing to inflate it. Um, this isn't very good because for you to be able to breathe, you need to get air into your lungs. And mm. so collapsed lungs are very dangerous. Basically, in order to solve the problem, you need some way of letting, getting the air out mm. when you breathe out. So it can collapse on its own sometimes. Well, it's more, um, normally, I think it's normal. I certainly you get it a lot with stabbings. I don't yeah. know. If, I mean, you'd have to. I, again, I'm not a doctor, so I don't mm. know all ways of doing it. Mm. I think you can possibly get it if you had a lot of fluid in. in you could you get something similar if you had a lot of fluid in between. Sure. But basically, in order to solve the problem, you need to somehow get rid of the stuff which is filling up this pleural cavity and, and stop being a cavity. So you essentially put in a one-way valve. So when you breathe out and squash your chest, it squeezes the air out of that cavity or mm -hmm. the liquid, and then it's then the valve shuts. So when you breathe in, it doesn't let anything else in. So the lung has to expand a bit, and you breathe out again, and more of it comes out. You breathe in, and slowly the lung inflates again. 
Dr. Dave. Lord Nelson at the Battle of Trafalgar with the wounds he had if the medical technology was available that we have now, would he, they have been able to save him? That's from Glenn in Norwich. Again, I'm not a medical doctor. Um, I think Lord Nelson, um, a bullet went through his, in, into his shoulder, in through, coming down from above, in mm. through his lung and ended up hitting his spine. Um, I think he was supposed to have said that it had shot his spine through. Um, so I think it would, he'd been in pretty serious trouble even today. Mm. Um, I think people do survive worse injuries than that. I think he'd almost certainly been paralysed mm. after it because um, this, um, even modern technology, you can't fix mm. a broken spine. Um, but I think his odds would be, his um, chances would have been an awful, awful lot better, yes. All right. Dave in Ipswich says, if aluminium foil in nano-sized pieces will explode, why is it not used as fuel? In fact, just about anything you um, you make in very, very small particles will explode, um, basically because it can, it's got a very large surface area, um, things tend to only burn on their surfaces um, because that's where the air can get at them. So if you take a, a lump, a big lump of aluminium, it's only got a small, uh, a certain surface. If you chop it up into smaller bits, and you, every time you chop it, you get more surface. If you grind it up into very fine powder, then you get an even larger surface. Um, and if you get down to nano-sized particles, it's got an immense surface, and it will all react incredibly fast, and it will explode. Um, the problem with using aluminium as a fuel is that um, definitely a fuel for something like cars there's a couple of things one of them is that um, it takes a lot of energy to produce it it takes far more energy to produce it than it would you get by burning it mm-hmm. so you don't actually gain anything by using it as a fuel unless you've got a good reason to use it as such the other one is when it burns, it doesn't produce a gas like petrol does. It produces carbon dioxide and water, which are both gases at that temperature. It produces aluminium oxide, which is a solid. And it's also a very, very abrasive solid. So you really wouldn't want to have it anywhere near an engine because it would. Um, it's basically, a, basically producing sapphire, which is a wonderful abrasive agent. Mm. Um, and it will um, scrape the bits of your engines to pieces. And it will build up in big piles and it will do nasty things. Um, although saying that, it, it is used in some forms of rocket fuel. Um, it's a lot of energy in it, and uh, you put it with an oxidizer, produces lots of heat, makes gases very hot, and you can make rocket fuel out of it. So yes, it is used in a fuel, but only as a fuel, but only in very, very specific circumstances. Okay, uh, Donovan is in Northampton by email. Thank you very much for your email, Donovan. Um, we are both well, I think, aren't we, Dave? Um, my question is this: Each night I set my alarm to wake me at six twenty every morning. If I forget to set it, I still wake up at six twenty, even though I don't go to bed the same time each night. How does my body work it out? Um, I. Again, it's not my area of speciality, but you're, you have all sorts of um, clocks in your body, lots of little molecular clocks. In Some of them are in, in single cells, other, than, other bits of them are in little bits of your brain. Chris will be able to tell you what they're called. Um, and these are reset every day by, the, um, by when the dawn happens and dusk happening and when you eat. There are different ways which you can reset different ones of the, um, your body clocks. Mm. And if you're getting up every day and you get used to it, then these body clocks will get you ready to wake up 
at a certain time because that's when you obviously need to get up because you're getting up that time every mm. day and they'll get they'll be getting reset uh, and tuned by um, dawn and dusk yeah. and things every day yeah so i think if, if you left it for a few weeks then you wouldn't keep getting up at six times. took me ages to uh, sort of declimatize myself from the night shift and i used to do four nights then sort of be normal over the weekend and then you know do the night shift again and, and it's taken me ages to sort of get myself back into some kind of um um level if you like and even yeah. even now, you know, I can stay up late and often do too much. Thank you very much. Right. Oh, it's, it's got loads coming in now. Um, as the sun produces energy, it presumably loses mass and its gravity weakens. Are the planets spiralling outwards? That's from Kevin in Great Yarmouth. Um, yes, the sun is losing mass. Um, one way it's losing mass is because it's giving out all this light. And Einstein, also another thing he worked out, was that energy is equivalent to mass. So if it's giving out lots of light, you're giving out lots of energy, so it must be losing mass. It's actually losing about um, 4 million tonnes of uh, mass every second just from the light it's giving out. Gosh. Which seems like a huge amount. But the sun is absolutely immense. Mm. So it could keep on going at that rate for 160 billion years before mm. it runs out. Mm. So that's, that's having a very small effect. Mm. And it's actually losing mass more quickly by the effect called the solar wind, which is actually what I was talking about earlier, these little particles being thrown off it all the time. And it's probably lost a few percent of its uh, mass over, over the last um, four or five billion years like that. Um, and yes, that means its gravity is getting weaker. Whether the planets are spiralling outwards or inwards um, would depend on whether there's whether there's any friction, mm. and whether the friction is uh, on the solar wind and things going past them is a bigger effect, or whether the um, the loss of mass from the sun is a bigger effect. But I don't know the balance of these two. The sort of two effects act, acting in opposite directions. But yes, there's no there's nothing to say that the Earth was exactly the same distance three billion years ago away from the sun as it is now. Peter Carbrook has got a bit of a chemistry question for you here. Hi, Super Sue. Um, please can I ask Dr Dave why wine lasts forever, like my ass it doesn't, and gets dearer, um, but even good beer goes past its sell-by date and then goes off? What happens to beer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is all chemistry. Um, I, mean, I know that not all wine does get good for a long time. If you have cheap wine... Um, apparently it gets worse after a certain period of time. Um, it, it'll, it, it sort of basically degrades like beer does, uh, certainly after a couple of, after four or five years. Yeah. I, I'm not really a wine or a beer drinker, so uh, I wouldn't have pers- say I have personal experience. Uh, I think you do need to have very the right kind of wine, um, and part of it probably is that what people, um, wine ageing, that the taste associated with wine being very old, people decided they like and they've acquired this taste and it's and if it's very old it, it's expensive because someone's had to store it for a long time mm. and if it's expensive it must be good I think there's a load of psychology involved with it <laughs> um, but I think if you, if you think it's just diff, slightly different reactions there's a, diff, there's a load of different um, chemicals inside wine than beer mm. um, so it'll degrade in different ways mm. um, certain I, definitely fresh beer goes off very quickly because there's actually still um, yeast in mm. it when it come, if you're getting it from a pub or something sure. and the yeast is, is a live thing and it will be eating um, sugar or dying and doing all sorts of strange chemical reactions yeah it's it. a weird thing isn't it because at uh, the French market on um, on Sunday um, we were buying some goat's cheese and um, I decided to have the one with the black peppercorns on it and that was the last one that was there and my daughter was looking at the other one which was one he says this is mature and we went, yeah, and it was literally grey. <laughs> and it wasn't the kind of thing. But, I mean, is that OK to eat like that? 
Well, I guess if he's selling it, it <laughs> one so. would hope so. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, as long as I mean, it'll be great because there's some kind of fungus growing on it. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, mold growing on yeah. it. Yeah. And I mean, depending on what, as long as the mold is a mold which isn't producing anything poisonous, then why not? It, well, yeah, it virtually had a head of hair. Um, Catherine says there's a shortage of bees at the moment. What is causing this? Do you know? I, I certainly don't know. I don't think anyone really knows. Um, there's lots of research going into it. I think there's a thing called a varroa mite going around, which has been causing problems, but um, there seem to be problems with um, sudden colony, colony collapse syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the colony seem to be collapsing even without the mite going around. I don't know. People are certainly um, researching it. Yeah. Um, and uh, Michelle in Wellingborough says, why do people get hard skin on their big toes on the, and on the heel? I sometimes put my plimsolls on and the skin is all right, but when I put my trainers on, I get hard skin. How irritating is that? It's probably less irritating than if you didn't. Um, the, re- <laughs> the reason why you, you get a build-up of skin is because your body, if, if you're getting an area in, on your foot which is getting rubbed a lot, yeah. your body thinks, ah, oh, um, the skin's wearing out, I'd better make some more because if I don't make some more, it's going to wear all the way through and that's going to hurt. Um, and if it rubs away too quickly, then your body realises a problem. It doesn't want to get to the really sensitive, deep layers of skin where it, the skin grows from. And so it creates a blister to keep the rub away from the really sensitive bits of your skin. Um, and so if it detects there's a lot of rubbing going on, then it will grow skin faster, mm. so it will build up. So I expect the reason why your trainers are doing it more than your plimsolls is because your trainers possibly don't fit quite as well, so they're rubbing slightly in one place. The place where you get really, really thick skin tends to be at the edges of the areas which have been rubbing hard. Getting the skin's getting worn off all the time, so it doesn't build up. But the edges is probably I'm not convinced. I'm not sure. Again, it's Chris, mm. but I think there's some kind of hormone or some kind of chemical signal which, when there's a lot of rubbing, tells all the skin around to grow very fast. Yeah, um, And at the edges, it's, it gets the hormone, it yeah, gets the signal, it. but isn't getting the rubbing quite so much. So <laughs> you, right, you can Dave. get sort of really thick bits at the edge. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 